So Jay, you're out, you're free, you're rehabilitated. What's next? What's happening? What you gonna do? You got the money you owe us, motherfucker? So our guest on Great Minds today is the legendary drummer, Willie Too Big Hall. And Willie, I'd love to take us back and go back to a magical place called the Tiki Club and talk about (laughs) Johnny London. And I want to also, Willie, talk about what it was like in that era. And I know it was not always easy especially as things started to pick up and you got on the road as a black artist. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll start from the beginning. And that's exactly um, what the Tiki Club was for me. It was the beginning. I was finishing up uh, my last year in high school and uh, I had always played drums in the high school band, junior high and high school. So, uh, My love for music was uh, really accentuated with the the British invasion, as well as uh, the stuff that was coming out of Motown. So uh, I would uh, seek out these. There were a few clubs in my area, and I would seek them out. And uh, as I would leave school, I'd follow the crowd. You know, music was was in my blood. So when I uh, would pass the Tiki Club. It was located on Bellevue Street. And uh, when I would like um, pass the club, I'd hear these people playing. And uh, the people that were playing were a group of musicians that originally had come out of the Willie Mitchell band. And Willie Mitchell's son, Horace Mitchell, was the drummer. So I, I, I managed to squeeze in the door or the back door somewhere. And... Uh, I met Horace and Horace took a liking to me and he gave me a chance to come up and play. He said, hey, man, you want to play a couple of songs? So, you know, it's green, it's goose stuff. So, um, but he, he gave me the chance each week to play uh, his drums in front of an audience. You know, I was like 16, 17 or something. And uh, so that experience came out of meeting him and uh, being at the Tiki Club, but also the Tiki Club was the hot spot. Uh, in the south part of Memphis. And that's where, uh, you know, most of the local talent would come and perform. And that's where a lot of the budding musicians uh, got a chance to, you know, display or practice in front of a live audience. And uh, there was one guy that had a group there. His name was Johnny London. He gave me my first road gig. Uh, and actually, he gave me my first consistent gig where we would work every day, uh, every weekend, actually, Friday and Saturday. And mind you, I'm, I'm like a junior uh, or so in high school. We didn't make, but in the Johnny London band, I don't think we ever, I never made any more than $25 a night. <laughs> and I don't know. He, uh, you know, he, he may have uh, asked for five of those back to put on the gas. I don't know. But he was a great guy. Though. I, I love Johnny, and I'm thankful that I met him. Everywhere you go, everything you do, you 
So through Johnny's band, Johnny playing all up in the Mid-South, you know, Arkansas colleges, uh, Texas, some parts of Florida. So it gave me, it exposed me to travel as well as, uh, you know, just getting out, meeting people, finding out what it takes to be a good musician and uh, learning that some nights are better than others and, <laughs> yep. and the struggles and the struggles and and, you know, a lot of people don't understand when you make a certain amount of money a night as a struggling musician, you're just coming up. You know, they may give you $30 for performing for four hours. And uh, but see, you don't net that $30. Uh, you got cleaning uh, expenses. You got food. You got you got to give your girlfriend some and you got to give your mom some. And <laughs> so, yeah. There are a lot of expenses. There are a lot of expenses encountered uh, with a musician and an entertainer. <clears throat> but yes, Johnny London. Uh, I was just uh, giving tribute to, to Johnny. I hope he still lives. But yeah, he was. He was the beginning uh, organization. He was the begin. The first group that employed me to perform uh, before a live audience. And that was way, this was like 67, early, early 68, late 67. And, uh, you know, that was prior to all of the recording experiences. And what amazes me about your story and people like Booker T. Jones, who I know you worked with in the Stax family, is just how young you were when you started. And, and that's, that's part of the blessing, especially in that era because uh, most of the older guys had just come out of the jazz era, you know, the 40s, 30s, 40s. And then when the rock and roll era started in the 50s, you know, it was just a great time to be born and to be of that age, you know, and uh, because music started to explode. I mean, it wasn't, the field wasn't as crowded as it is now. I mean, these, these people, I mean, people nowadays, we can make a we could make a record in our bathroom, you know, and it and the EQs sound just as great as the ones that come from Columbia Records, you know. Yeah. And and the field is crowded because because uh, you know I tell people that I meet the only way to truly prove that you did live is through audio and video. So everybody has a story, and it's usually a story related to their life. So uh, everybody's recording now and the field is really crowded, but I guess that's a good thing because, because music is a universal language and uh, that's probably how we're going to be able to, you know, um, control and uh, give information to the masses. You know, they, they, the masses will respond to a message in, wrapped in music quicker than they will uh, listening to some politician or, you know, music is, it is truly the universal language. No question. And I had uh, an old buddy of yours, Steve Cropper on Great Minds, and I asked him about race at that time. <laughs> and he was talking about, you know, as you know, the MGs, four guys, two black, two white. And Steve had one of the great answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, we didn't see race back then. 
You know, Al Jackson was my friend. Mm -hmm. You know, Booker was my friend. Duck was my friend. And yet you had this mm -hmm. incredibly challenging time, I'm sure, traveling on the road in the South as a young black artist with all black musicians. You must have had some tough moments. Oh, of course. You know, uh, presently and uh, for some time now, I've been writing uh, a book, I, I guess you could say. And then I've, I've done a, I started on a video documentary. But uh, yeah, also during that time now, see, and that, that was a mixture uh, of a lot of different experiences because here you were, here I was a young, or here we were young people, vibrant, uh, living a young age at the time that music was exploding and it was a explorative and the field wasn't crowded. So you, you're mixed with, you got that great feeling. And then again, you just happened to come up in the late 50s and you came up in a time when the, uh, the civil rights movement was really uh, beginning to take off. So no, I don't, I, I, I understand what the statement that Steve made. In, in my own view, I always see race uh, in the form of color. Now, I don't, uh, racism is a thing that person can confront you with, but I always look at race. I, I, race is colors. I think that's what the word should mean. <laughs> but, and if you look at the, the sky, the ground, any of the atmosphere, it is composed of the rainbow and, yeah. and color, it, color is the beauty of it all. And I think fortunately for Steve and Duck and Booker and Al, they just happen to be mixed, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, and they, they loved that. They loved the fact that they were mixed like that. And, uh, you know, and then also, um, like I say, they, they just, it just happened that way. They didn't choose, well, we're going to have a white guitar player and a white bass player and let's get a black drummer. No, no. These guys, it was just a, you know how strange things happen in life that you can't explain and, and you feel blessed yeah. when you look at it. That's what happened with those guys. And, and you couldn't, and, and you know, there were a bunch of other MGs to follow when, when the, the original guys moved and left Stacks. There were other groups put together. I think uh, Doug Don and Bobby Manuel, they had an MG group and, uh, and it, it changed hands with different musicians coming in and out of the group. Yep. But uh, they never could get, you know, when they couldn't sell any records after that, because, you know, when that originality leaves, it's just like the Aunt Jemima pancake recipe. Yep. You know, when somebody <laughs> took over the franchise, yeah, when, when they took over the franchise, you know, uh, according to whatever had to happen, you know, somebody uh, added or took away something from the recipe. I don't know whether they had to do it for copyrights or whatever, but you know, when you, when you, when you start adding additives, it, it changes the whole flavor. Now, when I, when I did the tribute album with Booker T and the MGs, Universal Language for Electra Asylum, I was so privileged. I even listened to that stuff today. Uh, I was privileged to have been with this group because when I first heard them on the radio in Pensacola, Florida, where I was living as a teenager, I was just blown away, you know, but I knew that was my destiny. But so to work with those guys was really a pleasure. And I hope I did them justice, uh, you know, in my playing. 
was a, it's a great, great record and still stands up today. Absolutely. So I, I want to stay back yeah. in the in the early days for a little while, and I know you love to wear Beetle boots. Talk about the first time <laughs> I got you again. You blowing me away, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I don't think today in culture we have anything like the Ed Sullivan Show. And I know you used to tune in no. and take us back to that first time that you saw the Beatles over here and what that meant musically. Wonderful. Uh, living in Pensacola, Florida, <clears throat> my family, my my uh, my mother and her siblings, they moved from Uriah, Alabama to Pensacola, Florida seven sisters and four brothers, you know, and they started splitting up and whatever. Pensacola at that time, uh, in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, I mean, it was just a spot on the wall, uh, real rural. And so we had, saying that to say, we had nothing to do. Uh, school was a great, was the only thing that, that interested me until the British invasion happened. Man, I don't know what happened to me. I guess I, I guess I became just like some of those girls that were screaming out there. I just went nuts. I mean, it it opened up a floodgate that oh, I was so glad. And I I could actually, I had premonitions about my future in music through dreaming. I I would lay down and dream that I was on stage and dream that I was, you know, performing. And so when 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 the uh, when the Beatles came along, Ed Sullivan, who had some of the purest entertainment, you know, these guys were live. There were no uh, pre-recorded tracks behind them. You know, they had bands actually playing the music, so you were getting the actual artists, and and everybody was loving it. So the Beatles blew everybody away. I mean, even today, I'm weak for them. Their music uh, came out during the time when. Uh, you know, I was young and going through my first marriage as a young man, going through my first million as a young fool. And uh, so it was it was a <laughs> it was an exciting time. Well, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, Pensacola, so I don't know, like I say, I don't know what happened. I, my my stepfather purchased my first parade drum for $20. And it, was, it wasn't in good shape, but, you know, he worked with me and gave me money and uh, we got it fixed up. So I started in the uh, junior high band in Pensacola. And um, then, you know, combined with learning to read music, to play music with discipline, at a young age like that. Um, so when I heard this popular music, oh man, I knew, I knew how to do what they were doing because I had learned the techniques from junior high school. So I could hear a drum beat on a song and I, I could mimic that because I knew how to move. I knew how to play that. 
So um, I, I was blown away. If I could, if I could have grown my hair that way, I would have had a beetle haircut. Right. And uh, so somehow I worked in a fruit stand somewhere in the county. And this guy that I worked for, he paid me little lunch money. And I saved that little money up. And I actually went downtown, as they call it, in them small cities, in them small towns. We went downtown. And uh, I saw these boots. And they were suede. They had a pointed toe. And they came up like uh, a little over my ankle. And, uh, and that, those were the ones like the Beatles had. I'm sure all merchandising merchandising were, you know, the, I knew that those were beetle boots. I think yep. that's the way they advertised it. Yep, yep. And so uh, I bought them and, <laughs> and I wore, I, I, I messed around and wore them to school one day. And I tell you, man, if you've ever been jived by a bunch of ghetto kids, I mean, like, you know, rural area kids, and you, you they can make you feel pretty small. <laughs> so, uh. Uh, after lunch, I had to I had to go home and take the boots off and come back to school, you know. But I was one of the only black, as far as I knew, I was the only black kid in in our little area that had a pair of beetle boots, and I would only wear them in the house when I would get in front of the mirror and uh, pantomime. But uh, I, yeah, and I, I got jived about it. But I, I, we didn't have afros then back in the late. 50s early 60s so uh if i could have cut my hair that way i would have oh man that's a great story so somehow you end up in memphis we talked about the tiki club and a guy named alan jones sees you behind the drum kit and flips for you yeah yeah and uh alan was alan jones alan alvoy jones um Again, at the Tiki Club on Bellevue, right at Bellevue and, and Macklemore. All the artists, all the local artists, and a lot of the groups, like the, the early groups that Stax were recording, they would use the Tiki Club as sort of like, a, you know, a launching pad. You know, we'd rehearse and, you know, it was more camaraderie then, you know, and the, the, the glitter and the glamour. You know, we didn't pay that much attention to it. You know, everybody was just friends. But anyway, at the Tiki Club, actually, I was playing with Johnny London. Johnny London, uh, Ronnie Williams on organ, Donald Pinkston on trumpet. And uh, there was another young lady, Miss Betty something, she sang. And uh, so I broke a stick during a performance. A friend of mine, James Wallace, we call him Wally Gator, he saw that happen, and I f somehow I finished the song with the one stick. So evidently that song wasn't a, wasn't an up tempo song. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I, I finished the song with the one stick, and Wallace, Mr. Wallace, he went back and told Alan Jones, uh, which Alan had already start. He had already uh, stacks records, and Alan Jones they had already put the the new Barcays band together. I was, I wasn't even associated with the Barcays then. They were, I was a fan of theirs, but, but Alan was their producer. They had, uh, Stax had given Alan the challenge. Hey, uh, we're going to give you the challenge of putting the new Barcays together. So they auditioned all these guys. And um, so the band was already set. I was still working with, with Johnny London. Uh, we were doing some kind of song. I only had two sticks. 
And um, so one broke and I finished the song with the one stick that uh, Wallace went back and told Alan Jones, Alan Jones made it a point to come and check Johnny London's show out, which wasn't anything unusual because on the weekend, the barcades, when it, if they weren't rehearsing, you know, I, like I say, everybody would meet at that club. So Alan came or was there that night and Wallace raved about me to Alan and Alan watched me and listened to me. I started following the bar case whenever Johnny wasn't working. Uh, the bar case would rehearse at the Tiki Club and my mom and, and my family, we lived not far from the Tiki Club. So and then when Michael Toes was chosen to play guitar for the bar case, out of this, the, the second group of, of Barcase, he lived in my neighborhood. So whenever they would come to pick Michael up, you know, and I hung out with Michael, Michael taught me to play the guitar. And uh, so when they come to pick Michael up, I would, they wouldn't let me ride with them, you know? <laughs> so I would walk to the club or run. <laughs> Most of the time I ran because I wanted to get, I was so anxious. So I would run up to the club and uh, squeeze my way in and listen to the bar case rehearse. So I started hanging around and hanging around. And every time uh, the uh, every time Roy Cunningham would put his sticks down, then I'd crawl up on stage and try to try to play, but be quiet too, you know. And so eventually, Alan Jones asked me, say, uh, the band took a break, and uh, the guys had to make runs. And so Alan said, hey, hey, he said James and Michael. He said, hey, before you guys leave, I want to hear Willie play. I ain't never heard, um, you know, I want to hear him play with y'all. And so Michael and James came back on. So we had a three piece rhythm section and Alan started asking us to play different songs. You know, most of them was, uh, was either uh, hard rock or they were Stax products and all the Stax products I knew. So um, he, we, we played for about 15 minutes and he said, great, great. He said, Hey Willie, you know, he said, hey, man, come to rehearsal tomorrow. I got an idea. And the next couple of days uh, came and met the guys up there and Alan called a meeting. He said, I have an idea. I want to add an extra drummer to the group and we're going to change our style and we're going to be a black rock group. And uh, that was Alan's baby. And it worked. You know, we, we went from the naturally after the, the, the guys died, the original group died. Uh, when the second group was put together, they tried to come back with, you know, the same little uh, bubblegum music, you know, the little band riffs with the with the little slick, tricky horn lines. And, you know, we even did a couple of things where we added crowd noises, just like they did on Soul Finger, the original group did. So the band came back with a lot of, uh, when they first came out, the second group first started releasing material under Alan Jones production. We came out with a lot of uh, bubblegum stuff. When Alan came with the idea about adding the second drummer, he had visualized what became the black rock bar cage, you know, with the suede jackets and we were playing the songs with the uh, electric, um, with the uh, fuzz guitars and all, we just went crazy. <laughs> 
and it was it was beautiful to uh, to branch because the other the other system wasn't working the bubblegum stuff looking looking for another soul finger it just wasn't working and just to take a step back the second lineup in the bar case was tied to the terrible plane crash in December of 67 in Wisconsin when Otis Redding and I think it was four of the members of the band Ben Cauley was the only one as I recall who survived all died in that tragic plane crash yeah one of the, uh, one of the great tragedies of our time yeah man it, you know I uh, the day that happened on the 10th uh, just happened it happened to be uh, you know it was cold naturally here in Memphis uh, but it rained oh I mean like never before and everybody was sad. And I was spending the uh, winter with my aunt going to school. So I was so hurt. I came out, I walked in the rain. I walked off her, off her porch to a, a set of stairs that, that her house set up on a, on a hill like. So I walked and sat on those stairs and I cried. And then I thought about uh, the song or many songs that mention the the rain hides your tears you know you how the rain hides your tears and it's a perfect time to cry and I, mm. I was sitting there thinking about that and crying because you know that was devastating mm. yeah i talked to uh william bell last week and he was supposed to be on that plane with otis yeah. and the emotion you know all these years later it's like it was yesterday and it, it must have scared. Uh, there was another singer that they carried with them. His name was uh, that the Barquets used as an opening act and also, you know, having a vocalist with him. And his name was Carl Sims. Carl Sims. Carl was a neighborhood guy. They all went to school together. They all were friends. And uh, Carl was was their opening singer, uh, the original Barquets. And from what I uh, from what he told me, he was supposed to have been on that flight also. Oh, amazing. So I, I know you work with some amazing artists, you know, as part of the Stax yeah. family, acts like Carla and Rufus Thomas and the Staple Singers and Isaac Hayes, of course. But going back to the Barquets when you were with them for a while, when he was still doing sort of the bubblegum stuff, as you described it, I read somewhere that you toured and were the opening act with the Jackson 5. Uh, believe it or not, Matt, uh, because of the booking agent, uh, uh, there were two people involved in a booking agency that booked the new bar case. And uh, the guy's name was Don Dortch, and uh, the lady's name was Betty Berger. Uh, I forgot what the, the name of the company was, but those were two real good people that booked the new Barquets coming up. And because of the sympathy for the death of the guys, and, uh, you know, they as a legacy, they left that tremendous song, Soul Finger. Uh, the world grieved. And so any show that we, that they asked to, that the booking company wanted us to be on, we were allowed. We opened the sh we opened shows for every act from 68 to 69 that was popular. 
popular uh, from Janis Joplin to Blood, Sweat and Tears to the Brooklyn Bridge to the Jackson Five when Michael wasn't allowed to come out of his room. <laughs> right. And uh, oh, uh, Edgar and Johnny Winters, uh, the Silvers, uh, oh, you name it. I, and that's, that's, that's honest. Uh, and I, I think it was due because, see, we were young kids, man. We we had the energy to stay on stage moving and get, you know, making ourselves become, uh, you know, totally exhausted when you finish a show. You know, we had that that youthful energy, but we didn't really have a show presence, you know, We did, and we didn't have a hit record. You know, we were still living off of Soul Finger. But we didn't have show presence. We didn't. There was a time we were on tour with the Jacksons when they used to give us 30 minutes or 20 minutes. And somehow we put some heat on them, you know, (laughs) put heat behind them. And uh, Joe Jackson cut us back to 15 minutes. We used to be able with the Jacksons to use the entire stage. But after putting heat on the group, uh, Joe Jackson cut us down. We had to set up our little four or five pieces in front of their equipment, you know, that, so they, you know, but that was good for competition. So we all became good friends, the Jacksons and, uh, and the Barcades. I'm the son of a bass. But yeah, I think it was, I really think it was due to the sympathy and, uh, and and being ready at the right time. You know, we were energetic, we were young, good looking people, and we had the backing of the, of the music world and a good record company. So yeah. it was it was just a good mixture, right. a good recipe. And that's the ultimate compliment that he cut you back for being too good. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it, I think you know, I, back in the in the era, the the uh, rock era and uh, Sunset Boulevard strip era, you know, during that time, the, the hippie age and all of that, you didn't really have to be good, <laughs> you know, because the field wasn't crowded. All you had to do was be there, you know, be, and that's where all these different styles came from because people were there that weren't. You know, they didn't have degrees in music or anything like that. They, they grew up on farms, but they were original. And, and I think, uh, you know, during that time, that's why, that's why a lot of artists exploded, because all of them were different. Right now, you know, we, unfortunately, in some genres, you know, everybody sounds the same. Yeah, and, um, no, you're true. So, Willie, for reflecting on that Stax period, you worked with some of the most incredible artists that this country's ever produced. When you lay awake at night or as you're, you know, going through drafts of your book and you're 
recalling in your mind stories about people like Isaac Hayes and like Rufus and his wonderful daughter, Carla. What were some of your favorite, you know, stories from that era? Hmm. <laughs> There's so many, you know, um, each one of those artists carried their own luggage, you know, in a sense, because there are great stories of all of them because nobody was tainted. Nobody became tainted after their success. Um, I was, there was never a door closed in anybody's face when you met these artists or when you were around these artists. Uh, some of them had their own little idiosyncrasies and their little jealousies. <laughs> But most of the problems that I saw, most of the problems that I saw, they they never got out of hand. But most of the quarrels between the men, the the ego, the male egos around there were about girlfriends and and wives. You know, it was never about dishonesty or 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 even ego tripping. Uh, but everybody had a good story. Isaac, I, I've got so many with Isaac. I, I remember one with Isaac. Um, we were playing the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium outside of D.C. It was a Stax show. Um, <laughs> the, the manager of the stadium or the people in charge had told all the audience, which was predominantly Black, to not come on the field, you know, not tear up the grass, not come on, don't, don't come out there on the field. Y'all stay up in the stands. And so uh, Isaac was the headliner and Rufus Thomas was coming on before Isaac. So Rufus had this song, uh, Funky Chicken. And I think one of the opening lines in Funky Chicken is, y'all come on down, y'all come right on up front. <laughs> right. And the man had warned Rufus, the man had warned Rufus, man, don't do that. So um, Rufus did it anyway. It was a part of his song. You know, Rufus was headstrong. He, uh, he was a real man. And uh, he figured, you know, man, y'all could fix the field. These people ain't gonna do nothing but tear up a little grass. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of racial crap going, going on too. But anyway, uh, so all the people, the whole 100,000, 50,000, whatever it was, they came down on the field and man, they had the best time. But, uh, they they went against the rules and the law. So the police came in and uh, with helicopters, they dropped tear gas canisters. Uh, cops come from everywhere. I've never seen so many police. And uh, now, so they surrounded the stadium. They stopped the show, surrounded the stadium. They're dropping tear gas from, from the helicopters. Uh, police are running out there beating people with sticks. I mean, you know, this is a concert. Nobody came prepared to you know, to battle. So people were on, you know, they were unprepared. So um, finally, man, and okay, this was a stadium like built like the Coliseum with different levels. Now you could get up from your seat and you can go look over the, the ramp and you could see the ground, you know? So when the police cars would pull up, people would go to the, to the ramp, look over and throw bricks and beer bottles and stuff. Oh, it was ugly, man. Wow. So finally, that went on for about an hour. They finally got it under control. And it was time. So they, the, the promoter said, the show must go on. They didn't want those people to tear the place up. So Isaac went on. And uh, he's up there playing. Okay, the whole, we're playing. 
Isaac, you know, I'm looking at his back constantly and uh, taking my cues because it's horrible acoustics back in the 70s in stadiums, in open stadiums. The the acoustics were horrible. So I'm I'm struggling with trying to, you know, keep the beat and, uh, you know, make sure I'm I'm hearing all my cues because you couldn't hardly hear anything. So all of a sudden somebody starts shooting. Pow, 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 pow. And Isaac never moved. And the rest of the guys kind of just dumped down behind their amps or something. Nobody left the stage but me. And what I did was, <laughs> I think I heard the set. There were like three shots in succession. And I think I heard the second shot when I was on the ground because <laughs> I had wow. come off that stage. Wow. There, was, there was a pole. There was, there was a pole. Uh, I guess it was a part of the stage. It was behind my drum platform. And uh, man, when I heard that shot, I ducked down real quick. And I, I shimmed around that pole and went down like a pole dancer <laughs> wow. and was headed for the dressing room. And, and so somebody said, Willie, where you going? I said, man, it's shooting. And I looked on stage and Isaac was still playing with the saxophone in his hand, hollering or cussing at me to get my ass back on stage. I said, man, they shoot. <laughs> he said, I don't give a shit. Get your ass back up here. So I tucked my tail and went on back up there, man. But it, it was funny because he was so mad. Now you think, and look, the drum platform usually is behind the artist. So if they shooting at him, they may hit me. Right, right, right. You're right in the line of fire. Oh, yeah, wow. man. But he was determined. I'm, I I don't know I don't know why he was so determined. He must have owed somebody some money. He was gonna make sure that contract was done. But uh, yeah, man, it, that that was funny and and frightening at the same time. Amazing. So they started calling me chicken. I had a chicken over there on the drums. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah, I would have done the same uh, thing. So uh, great, great stuff. And then really. and then there's also one. I'll I'll, I'll give you this one. Yeah, please. I'll make it shorter. No, please, there's please. Also, there's also one. There's also one with Rufus Thomas. Okay. Uh, when when Booker T and the MGs uh, moved, uh, that left a spot for the in-house rhythm section or the in-house band. Most of the stuff was done by the same clique of horn players that lived in Memphis. Most of the stuff was done by done by most of the same guys. The rhythm sections, they changed from time to time. I was blessed, even though traveling with Isaac on the road and, you know, going different places with other guys, other groups, I was blessed to be one, the only drummer, I guess, that was able to maintain my spot as the house drummer and yet tour and go and record with everybody else. You know, for for some years, that worked out perfectly. Uh, This particular session, so saying all that to say, there were only five or six of us, Michael Toes, James Alexander, myself, Lester Snell, Ronnie Hudson, uh, Marvell Thomas. There were Bobby Manuel. There wasn't more than nine of us at one time. But we were burnt out. You know, Isaac was working constantly. There were other groups. I'm flying here, flying there. And you know how you know the the tempo when you know when you're hot, you're hot. Sure. So all the rhythm session, we were burned out. So that evening, I think it was a three o'clock session in Studio A at Stacks. We were going to cut Rufus Thomas. 
Rufus is usually easy to deal with because, especially for me, uh, usually he and Marvell will have gotten together and worked out the song uh, musically and, and with the lyrics. And so when they bring it to me, uh, the bass player and Michael, uh, all we have to do is just put in the chinka 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 or the guitar line and the bass line has to, Rufus usually will dictate the bass line out of his mouth. That's the way he would give us you know, the, and he could mimic uh, the guitar parts. He may have played a little piano, uh, but I never really saw him play piano. And uh, he did play drums. You know, he uh, he wasn't an accomplished drummer, and neither am I. But at Stax, we sort of had a basic drum beat. <laughs> That's why I started doing a lot of crazy stuff when I would record with different artists. I would always try to put something against the grain as an as a form of identity because i've had drummers ask me say man why did you play that <laughs> i said so i'll know that is me and then you know i want to that's like my stamp uh like uh in shaft there's uh when you come out of the first course then there's a drum beat they're all four fours on the bass drum and and two and four on snare drum it's like a dun 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 and I played a beat, it was a skipping beat on the snare drum. Da, 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 da. Okay, it had no significance to the arrangement. In other words, I wasn't accenting a lick or doubling an accent. I did that purposely because I wanted that to be mine. You know, I owned that when I did that. So, you know, it was great to hear other drummers come back, not only ask me about it uh, and and hear it and and, and like it, but uh, to hear other musicians that re-record Chef, to hear them actually play that as if it was part of the composition. <laughs> Amazing. But uh, so we're, we're, we're dealing with Rufus Thomas. He used to, you know, he played, he would, uh, let me show you the beat now. This way it go. Well, all I want, that's all I want. Then you can put a little of this in there. And you, you cannot deviate from what Rufus gives you because if you're on stage playing, I've seen him do it many times, but he never did it to me. If you're on stage and you don't play exactly what Rufus wants you to play when and where, he will actually stop the song and turn around on stage with the audience there and reprimand you. That ain't what we rehearsed. That ain't what I told you to do. Now, you play the beat like I told you. If you can't, now we'll get somebody else. We're mm. on stage. <laughs> I've seen him do it, but he never did. He never did me like that. But I saw him do a couple other musicians like that. And so we're working with Rufus. The rhythm section is burnt out. We're, we're putting in long hours. We're recording sometimes three different artists in 24 hours. And that doesn't leave you much room for your family. And neither does it leave you any room for resting. Uh, so Rufus had kind of, I think he had gotten on everybody's nerves. You know, it was either the repetition that that bored us out or he was getting on one of the musicians or something. I, I don't know what it was. But anyway, so everybody was like grumbling. So there was a an aluminum ladder, you know, like you climb up a wall, a ladder. You yep. know, they've got the little sure. short ones, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> okay, anyway, this ladder was behind Rufus, and he was talking to us all crazy. I don't know what he was saying, but we didn't like it. And uh, the ladder had been opened slightly, 
you know, the part where it closes at the top. Yep. It was open. And so Rufus talking all crazy to us and he backed up and he went to sit on that ladder and it pinched his ass. It, I mean, it almost, it almost, because it was open, it was partially open. And when he sat on top of it, it closed up and with his butt cheek in it. Oh man. And boy, and you know, Rufus can look like Rufus when he wants to, he can make some faces, but that was a face that we had never seen before from pain on his butt. Oh, and boy, we 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 laughed. Everybody just laid on top of their instrument and laughed their butts off. But boy, that was that was so funny. And uh, that may have been the same night as um, I want to say the breakdown, but I'm not sure. But I know the incident did happen. <laughs> amazing, amazing, and not and not to gloss over it, but you were on behind the drum kit for the theme from Shaft, which is one of the most iconic movies and songs of all time. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Yeah, that that was such a blessing. It was such fun. It was um, not only um, not only was it uh, a phenomenal uh, occasion, but I had never played with a metronome. They didn't use them at stacks at that time. You know, anything you did, because a lot of the stacks records, you can actually hear some of the tempos uh, waver. Uh, a lot of times it's because of the drummer, but a lot of times also it's because of the editor. You know, these guys weren't, they weren't college grads, these engineers, but they were, they had natural talent. So, uh, yeah, to be involved in Chef, that was, God, that was, hmm, you can imagine how, how wonderful I feel about being a part of that in my lifetime. And, and what was more, what was also good was um, I was being prepared for other soundtracks uh, by being a part of the Chef soundtrack because uh, it taught me, Isaac had to hurry up and get me ready to deal with a metronome because when you're doing a movie score, you're dealing with the click track for editing purposes. And uh, so I had to learn. So what he did was um, we would rehearse in Studio A to his ideas for the uh, soundtrack, for the uh, opening theme. And, And so he, when we got ready to go to, the Continental Hyatt House uh, for MGM, when we got ready to start out, we would work daily on the studio lot in our little bungalow supplied with, our, with everything we needed musically. So it was like a five day a week job. And uh, so before leaving Memphis coming to LA, Isaac bought me an old metronome, uh, the pyramid shaped one with the, uh, at the top it had a red light 
that uh, when you set the uh, tempo, the light would blink to that tempo. You could actually turn the sound of the pendulum off. You know, you want to hear the click, 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 but you could actually turn that off and you could watch the light blink in that tempo. So I'm, you know, I'm real young, I'm energetic, I'm, I'm eager. So what I would do, Isaac told me, he said, I want you to sleep with that mother. You take this, you, you sleep with that mother. So I did that. I, uh, I would, in my room at the hotel, at the end of the night, you know, preparing for the next morning, uh, I would turn all the lights out and I would start the um, metronome with the blinking light and not the uh, sound of the pendulum. And I would take a book and I would practice my music, watching the light from a distance. And then uh, at other times I would put the pendulum sound on. And so that was my first experience. I mean, I'm, I, I, I didn't have a, a click track at Stax. Nobody, Isaac, it never happened to where they say, hey man, we're gonna rehearse with the click track for two weeks and then we're gonna go on to LA and, and finish the rehearsal. No. When I got to on the flight at the Memphis airport, Isaac handed me the box with the metronome in it. <laughs> so I had to get to work quick. I had no training, no schooling for any of that. I didn't know. I had no idea of the theory of a metronome. I didn't know how it was used in movies. This was brand new to me at, well, how was I, 20? Uh, and, you know, from Memphis, it, it, it you know, like it was, I, I didn't, I didn't think I, I knew I wasn't qualified to just go in and just make a killing of it, but I was eager and uh, I was going to just give it a shot. And that's what happened. So I, I have a lot of reason to be grateful for being a part of uh, the musicianship on the recording by Isaac Hayes of the song Chef. It has really it, re it really changed, it changed my life in a lot of different ways. You know, it's, it's like anything, any project that a person is a part of and it's an achievement, it gives you a, self, a sense of self-worth. And so at that age, you know, being a young black kid from the ghetto, uh, you know, with no, I hadn't had any college experience, you know, just high school education, didn't know where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. You know, I was at a point I just hadn't, I didn't have guidance, you know? And uh, so for that to happen, it was, it opened up so many things. You know, I was able to make money. Um, I, I could do things for my family, which was in need. You know, I grew up with a couple of stepfathers and, uh, you know, I always loved my mom and my sisters. I never had, uh, I have two sisters and two sons. So the, 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 the financial opportunities opened up for us as a family, you know, we were able mm -hmm. to buy our first home and we were able to move to another home and send, send your mother on a, on a vacation with money, <laughs> everything yeah. prepaid yeah. and uh, buy cars for everybody. They said, this is my, this is my youngest sister. She's 14. You want a car? <laughs> right. So it was, you know, so it, 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 it was truly a blessing. And you, you kind of, I've often kind of wondered, you know, like in religion, it teaches us, especially the, the Christianity, the Christian religion teaches us that 
we are not worthy of the mercy and the blessings that we receive and uh, and and that our gods or god does these things for us out of his mercy uh, we're not deserving so you know it, it sometimes you know you can stop and think to yourself wow so many blessings have come at you and you know i know it must really be nice for a millionaire to be able to not to have their everyday yeah. struggles so uh it for a minute there you know i, I felt that pleasure well, that's what a wonderful story to be able to take care of your mom and and, and family yeah. um yeah. so one of the things that i love to do on great minds is talk about some of the great names that are i won't say lost in history willie but underplayed and one of them is al jackson and hmm. I, I don't know that history in general and musical history in particular has paid him his due as the original drummer in booker t and the mgs and you knew al and you succeeded al and as you said with the was the only other house drummer at stacks who you know not only worked on everything in the studio but also toured with a lot of great acts Give us your reflections on Al and what it must have been like when Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn asked you to join the MGs. Uh, Al Jackson Jr. Ah oh, man, he was so he was he was not only a a good drummer for recording R and B music, but uh, I heard from his history that he was a jazz drummer and that he was a great jazz drummer. Uh, that was a little before my, before I came to Stax, before I came to Memphis. But as an R&B or groove drummer, or there's no telling what he could play because his life was cut short at a time when mostly everything coming out of here was R&B and he was a master at it. And I was so blessed to have, you know, I, here I am, I'm 16 living way down south and i hear this music and i said wow it and it, it's not like it was symphonic music you know a lot of parts a lot of music notes it was simplicity but it felt so good you know it made you move your shoulders and your back and stuff you know and uh, so and to get the opportunity to come straight and be Talk. I mean, just watch him play. Al never actually taught me anything. You could learn just watching him. He and I actually played on a song together. Uh, the song is called Hey Jude, which is the Beatles original. Mm -hmm. It's on the uh, Barquet's Got a Groove album. Uh, he, I played from the intro to the vamp on the song. Now we did just like the Beatles did. We made the vamp long. Uh, we extended the vamp and uh, we did try to do different uh, build up uh, stuff in there with horns and everybody shouting and everything. So at, as the vamp starts in the song, Al plays 
the bass, he plays in, we had two sets of drums. I'm on the platform, Al set my, he played my drums. I played the studio drums. He played my drums on the floor next to me. They set the mics up and everything. He was playing the bass drum, the hi-hat with his left foot. And he was playing, he had mallets and he was playing the tom lick. It was a, it was a, a rhythm like boom, 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 boom. And we played, uh, that vamp may have been about eight minutes long. And uh, so uh, that was the only song that he and I were fortunate enough to play on together. Now, there was a time when Al Jackson, myself, and Roger Hawkins from Muscle Shows, for some reason, I don't know why Al and Roger were there, but we all ended up in Studio B. I was on the drums. Roger came in and Al came in. And there was an there were two sets of drums there. So two of us could play at the same time and then we'd rotate the other guy. And Al and Roger started playing together, man. It just blew me away. And then I would play with Roger and Al would play with me. Uh, we did this for about 20 minutes and uh, it was wonderful. But Al Jackson was, uh, he gave me, when Al Bell started the uh, Soul Explosion exploitation of the 20 some albums, 20 some albums that he was going to release on the company. One of the producers, he, he offered each one of the rhythm section, he offered everybody in the house to uh, produce an artist. He had to have 27 albums. So everybody became a producer. Uh, Isaac Hayes did Hot Buttered Soul. David Porter did Victim of the Joke. Uh, Al Jackson uh, was allowed to produce Albert King, which he may have already started. But anyway, he did an album with Albert King as the producer, Al Jackson. And he asked me to play on it. Uh, we recorded it at Art, the original Art Studios. And uh, <clears throat> the, the title of the album was The King, meaning Albert King, The King Does the King's Thing. <laughs> Weird. Wow. But it was Albert King doing, doing all Elvis Presley covers. So I got a chance to do the entire album and Al produced it and uh, he would pick me up. You know, I'm just still a young kid. Uh, green as shit. He would pick me up and uh, I'd ride with him every morning to the studio. And then uh, as they would record as Booker T and the MGs or if the MGs were the rhythm section for another artist and they were recording, I would sneak in the back way and listen to them record. And I learned that uh, the final product that you get has been manicured. I mean, if you sit on the floor while people are putting the song together, it can sound raggedy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, as you, as you're putting it together. But but the finished product, you know, after you get all the parts together. So Al and I became. I I always did admire him, and I I agree with with what you said. I don't think his. You know, there there's got to be a lot more recognition given to him, or some kind of plaque. There's there should be something etched in stone somewhere. You know that where one can go visit. You know, just like a museum or something. You know, because this guy was phenomenal. I once saw an article in the Rolling Stone magazine some many years ago, uh, where they mentioned that they did an article on Al Jackson, and they they said that he was the human metronome. And he was until he got shot. Now, when he got shot the second time, I, I, I listened to the product that they put out and I would listen to his performance. And then uh, at that time, shortly after he was shot the first time, I think 
the first time. Um, stacks in the rear of the building, they had put up this eight-foot uh, fence because there had been some trouble from some outside gangster boys that wanted to be gangsters that were starting to uh, uh, kidnap and uh, put the pressure on on all the people that worked at Stacks. You know, uh, they were getting ransom money. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, they were coming up saying, if you don't give us money, we're going to kill you. So they increased the security and all of that. But one night I was leaving the studio and Al was sitting at the, at the security guard's desk, or no, out in front of the security guard station. And he had fallen asleep. I mean, it was, you know, it was unusual for him. That wasn't the kind of guy he was. And come to find out later that uh, his injury affected him to the point to where he was put on these 25 milligram Valium uh, and he had to take them a couple of times a day. And as you know, man, it's, you, there's no doing nothing, you know, at that milligram. And if you're taking a couple of them a day, you're out. And so I, I saw that kind of, you know, kind of pull him down. And then uh, I started hearing it in his product, but that, uh, but the Al Jackson, bad boy. Bad boy. I kind of got my little style. Some of the ways that I move, but I mimic Al. You know, yeah, he, he's amazing. just phenomenal. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about Al Jackson Jr. today, Willie. That's that's a you know, yeah. these there needs to be more conversation about people like that. So people, future generations know Very who they were know who they were. So take us back to you getting asked to join the band with uh, with Cropper and Duck Dunn and Booker. Oh yeah. I, uh, during the, one of the, during the time of the Vietnam War, there was, Booker T and MGs had a job, a show to do at Fort Polk, Louisiana. That was a, uh, <clears throat> that was a uh, army base, I think it was, where they, a lot of the guys were sh being shipped from Fort Polk, Louisiana to Vietnam. So there were thousands of guys there. And uh, it was really active area. And we they did a show there and they asked me, the Barquets opened the show and they didn't, they, they didn't have a drummer. And they asked me when they got there to play with them. Can you sit in with us, man? So yeah, so it was fantastic. You know, I knew all their stuff and they only played the hits. So I didn't, I didn't, I felt comfortable. And they were a smash. <laughs> it was like Michael Jackson, all those guys getting ready to go off the die. And that was what they wanted to hear, guys from the South. Booker T and MGs, green onions and whatever. And uh, so from that point on, Booker and I think it was Booker and Duck, or maybe all three of them, they came to me and said, hey, man, would you be interested in doing some gigs with us? I said, sure, yeah. And that's how it started. They invited me to do that. And then so I went out with them. <clears throat> they, they didn't work regularly. You know, it'll be like one gig this month or two gigs ne next month. But I was always given uh, prior notice of a gig that to, to make sure that I was available for it. So this went on for a few months. And then when Booker T and EMGs signed the uh, record deal with Electra Asylum Record Company, they asked me to, to come out in L.A. and uh, and do the album with them. And uh, fortunately, it all kind of, intermingled because Steve and Duck were doing stuff with Levon Hill. And uh, so I, they hooked me up with that, that avenue. And then they were still doing the Saturday Night Live stuff. So it was all the same group 
doing the same, doing, you know, a bunch of stuff with the same guys. And that group becomes a band that, you know, we'll never, <laughs> we'll, we'll never see the likes again. The Blues Brothers Band. <laughs> One, two, three, four. We're so glad to see so many of you lovely people here tonight. We would especially like to welcome all the representatives of Illinois' law enforcement community who have chosen to join us here in the Palace Hotel Ballroom at this time. We certainly hope you all enjoy the show. And remember, people, that no matter who you are and what you do to live, thrive, and survive, there's still some things that make us all the same. You, me, them. Again, again, Matthew, but when we first started talking, we were talking about super, super musicians just exploding. And I mentioned it was just the right time. You know, everybody in the Blues Brothers band, as well as the John and Danny, everybody was good at what they did individually. And so it wasn't when I got there, I can only speak from when I got there. When I got there, it wasn't a thing about making a band these guys had already performed together you know on the david letterman show they had been going out doing gigs you know mimicking you know the blues and uh so it it, it just happened when when they asked me to join i became a member due to uh steve jordan having been contractually tied up and so i had just come off tour with levon helm and the all-stars which was Dr. John, Paul Butterfield, uh, Steve Cropper, Doug Dunn, Howard Johnson, Lou Marini, Tom Malone, same group of guys. We, they, we were working with the Levon, we were working with the Blues Brothers, uh, and they were working with the MGs, you know, it was a unit. So when they asked me to, to join, it was shortly after coming off tour with Levon. And uh, so the word is, I heard that um, they were in the production office and uh, the word came out that Steve Jordan, uh, Tom Scott and Paul Schaefer were tied up contractually with Gilda Radner uh, project, some off-Broadway of some stuff. And they had already received a substantial amount of money for the amount of months that they were going to work. They had been given an advance and, uh, and signed contracts, so there was no way for those three guys who were the original three that a few of us replaced. There was no way they could break the contracts and, and do the movie. And then when the, when the Universal gave the green light, they wanted to move right away. They needed everybody signed up and ready to go because from what I understand, this project had been put on hold for quite some time. So God knows I was ready. I wasn't prepared because I knew nothing about what I was getting ready to be involved in. But one thing for sure, everybody was such loving people, kind, open-hearted people. And I had worked with the rhythm section, you know, for the last 10 years. So I, I was right at home. I, I must give a shout out to Dan Aykroyd. He has been, I, I don't know the word to say, you know, he's really been a true friend. When uh, 
when Dan and John, when they, when the movie, the Blues Brothers premiered in Chicago in 1980, uh, we all flew up to be a part of that. And John and Danny, after the premiere, they came to my room and had a meeting with me. And they, uh, they explained to me that I will no longer, my services will no longer be required with them through the contract as a player for the movie. But they wanted to show my appreciate their appreciation for my participation. And, and then, uh, you know, they told me that just the three of us met and they told me, said that if there's ever anything you need, you know, don't hesitate to call. And I was given all the information. And to this day, that was 1980. And to this day, I don't know, was it 50, 60 years, 40, 50 years later, even though John's gone, and his wife, I think, is in ill health. Even to this day, Dan Aykroyd honors that verbal agreement. And when I've been in dire straits, he's always been there for me. And, and I love you, Danny, you and Donna and everybody. And um, I appreciate you. What a great story. And Willie, that movie, which clearly stands the test of time, I think, uh, a lot of people didn't understand John and Danny's reverence for the blues, reverence for the art. And I love that they included people like John Lee Hooker and Cab Calloway and Aretha Franklin and, and so many others in the film. What do you remember from playing behind Cab in that unbelievable scene with Steve Lawrence and, you know, the big the big gig to get that money before they ran back to Chicago to try to save the school. <laughs> Hit it! story about Minnie the Moocha. She was a low-down hoochie-coochie. She was the roughest, toughest frail, but Minnie had a heart as big as a whale. Hidey, 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 hidey. You know, the experience with the Blues Brothers, a lot of people didn't know because, you know, the movie, they didn't get a chance to see into John's life deeply. And they didn't, uh, you know, everything was cut short. We did the movie, they went out and toured. Uh, we, we're looking at a span of maybe two, three years. And after that, every, you know, everything was quiet. But I got a chance to live with these guys for nine months. They were true avid blues musicians fans, singers. Jo Danny actually plays the harmonica, plays his butt off. John played a little drums and a little guitar. But as you know, he could mimic any blues artist ever living. It's one thing I, I admire about musicians. And my son, uh, I told him one day, he plays about five different instruments. And, that, and I said, I really admire you for that, Patrick, because in order to learn effectively play one instrument, it takes a lot of time. 
It takes dedication. It takes sacrifice. And it takes intelligence to the point to where you determine that I'm going to get this. And if you do this, if you spend that much time on one instrument to perfect it and you play five, so that means you got to play that, put that same amount of dedication into each instrument. And that's, that's quite, that takes quite a while. It takes quite a lot of discipline. And that's the way John was and Danny was. I mean, John was just, he was just exuberantly talented. And uh, so they didn't know the extent of, the, of how, when they used the term blues brothers, it could have been looked at as a, you know, a little cliche for a good gimmick. But these guys were really blues people. They were blues guys. We were, after the set some nights uh, on the Universal lot, you know, everybody's got their own trailer or the little Winnebago or whatever. Well, anyway, we would visit, we'd go party with John and Danny sometimes on a break on the lot. We'd go in their trailer and they had this huge Rockola jukebox. I mean, one of the originals. And, and it was flooded with nothing but rhythm and blues and blues. And these guys knew every song on there. And we would, they would just, sometimes at rehearsal for a scene, they're taking a break. They would just up and call a song out. And it would be some by somebody named Lil Mustard or, or, or Wacky Mustache or somebody I'd never heard before. And they all knew it. Uh, you know, Johnny and Danny knew it and the band knew it. And I'm like, wow, these guys are really, they really love the blues. And, and, and so when you get to talking about Lou Marini, Tom Malone and Alan Rubin <clears throat> and Murphy Dunn, these guys here, I know the, the, the three horn players, they were accomplished musicians. Sure. You know, they can play, they can play anything. So their, their, their inventory of, of music that they cared about had to be vast. But these guys, if you take a break and go out to a club and just unwind, they're gonna play the blues. If you go to a place where there's a jukebox, they're going to play the blues. It's amazing. And, you know, and I've always looked at it like this, you know, blues is supposed to be associated with the black race. You know, it's supposed to be identified with the black race. But let me tell you, as time go on, there are fewer black artists still playing the blues. The younger black kids are going into the, um, the imitation stuff pseudo rhythm computerized stuff they're yeah, they're going yeah. there and so the the black musicians are getting away from their so-called roots and guess who's picking it up the young caucasian musicians uh there's a club here that i've frequented it's all black it's all white you know we you got your one percent or two percent of our people but all the every and it's full of musicians and every one of them a guitar player. Memphis has some of the best guitar players in the world. And the, and the only music they want to play is the blues. All these young white kids with them fancy guitars, all they want to play is the blues. And it's just amazing, man. But I, I have noticed that. Amazing. Yeah. It's uh, somewhat also lost in history, just how, you know, because they had comedy roots and Saturday Night Live, I think people didn't understand how much they loved the music, how much they revered, you know, and, you know, that people like John Lee Hooker and Cab Calloway and Aretha were in the film. I think that really showed just how much 
they appreciated the history and where it all came from. You know, these guys were, they were smart, uh, Landis and Ackroyd. You know, there's some intelligence about this. I know they must have exploded with excitement when they mentally saw this whole thing, either as it was being put together or before it was put together, because it, it has the combination of a smash. I mean, here you are, you've got all of these aged, original R&B and blues musicians and singers. You know, we were at the point where in the next 20 years, they may not be here. So you got them in the prime of their life and they're all original. And you, you, you're getting ready to captivate this all in one film and have light comedy associated with it too. You know, there's no heavy cursing. I think I may have had the worst word. I think I may have had the worst curse word in the whole movie. Right. Right. Hey, Matthew, I tell you, I tell you a little story. When the movie first came out, I was in L.A. My family was here in Memphis. It premiered here in Memphis, at, I think, May of, of 1980. My son, he was must have been maybe seven or eight or something like that. He was so proud of his father. Uh, my wife tell me these stories. He was so proud of his father. So we had a little money. And so he invited all of his friends from the neighborhood to come to go to the premiere. We picking up the tab popcorn, drinks, admission, everything. (laughs) He hadn't seen the movie and he didn't know. He'd seen the premiere, probably saw me in a, in a cameo pass by or something, but he hadn't heard my, my dialogue or my words yet. So the scene pops right at you when, when John and Danny come to the Ramada Inn and they sit down and and I'm, I'm supposed to be pissed at, at them. And I say to him, you got the money you owe me MF. Right. So my, my my wife said, my son and all the kids, oh, there you daddy, there you daddy. And said, when that MF word came out, said all the kids went, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And said, and said, and said, my son, said, my son, he was young. He said he was so embarrassed. <laughs> oh, my. Well, <laughs> a great, memorable quote uh, in movie history. Well, Willie, th- this was so much fun talking to you. And I hope you enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. I did, I did, Matthew, walking down memory lane. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Bye.